Hi everyone, my name is Genesis Cavasa and I am in 11th grade. And Pastor Craig asked me to answer the question, how do you feel Jesus praying for you today? And for me, I would say that I feel Jesus praying for me or interceding for me when I'm not expecting him to. I feel his presence and feel him standing in that gap in the places where I'm not ready to see him. It's not usually when I'm looking for a great big bang. It's when I'm going about my life doing everyday things. That's awesome. Thanks, Genesis. How do you sense Jesus praying for you this morning? As you got up and uh, got ready to come to church and got in the car, how do you sense Jesus praying for you this morning as you walked in here, sat down, Call to worship. How do you sense Jesus might be praying for you right now? When I give you a chance to think about that, um, as we get started this morning, and we'll come back to that question in a few minutes. How do you sense Jesus is praying for you now? If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, grab them and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 23. We've been in this study of the book of Hebrews. We've just entitled it simply, Jesus, our great high priest. So far, we've seen this idea, Jesus, the high priest. We've seen it just about in every chapter. The role of the high priest, really, really important in Jewish culture. We've talked a little bit about that. And yet the writer of this letter wants to make sure that Everyone who reads this letter knows that Jesus is greater than the great high priests. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the Jewish priesthood. The whole priesthood prefigured the one true high priest who was to come. That's Jesus. In the old order, people would have to come and confess their sins to the high priest. Uh, but with Christ as our high priest, we don't have to grovel we don't have to we can come boldly into the throne room and we can come into his glorious presence and we can trust that Jesus is our intermediary that he stands in the gap and that he intercedes for us representing us before God our great high priest Hebrews 10 19 through 23 says these words therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, the, back into the Holy of Holies, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. These verses remind us that our great high priest has accomplished all of this for us. He's cleansed our hearts. We can be drawn near to him. We can be known by God. We can know God. We can rest in his presence. And then we get the opportunity to reflect his glory to the people around us. So if you have your Bibles, let's back up. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll work through this chapter this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. We'll talk about this mysterious figure 
We've heard about over the last few weeks this priest named Melchizedek. So uh, the first couple of verses in Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3, says this. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and Melchizedek blessed him and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek has been referenced a bunch in these last couple of chapters of Hebrews. If you've been following along, you've heard about this guy. And now we're going to get a little bit of a closer look at this person. And in just a moment, we'll get a look at how Jesus is greater than this high priest archetype, Melchizedek. In the first couple of verses here, we see Melchizedek referenced, king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. He's the high priest of God. Uh, Salem means peace, and it's really, this king of Salem is really an early reference to Jerusalem. Melchizedek would be the high priest of Jerusalem. He's both king and high priest, and that's really significant because these two separate roles usually are two separate people. But in Melchizedek, he's both king and priest, really significant. And then there's this interaction with Abraham. We kind of heard about that. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. And you might have heard this idea of, uh, this idea of, of tithing. You might have heard that in there. Abraham tithes back to this mysterious king. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. So let's back up. Let's go all the way back. Let's go all the way back to the context of the story. So if you have your Bibles, go all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter 14. Genesis 14 is where this whole story uh, kind of takes place. It's a nutty story. It's totally crazy. You can read it later. I'm just going to highlight a couple of verses uh, and then talk a little bit about them. So Genesis chapter 14, verse 11 and 12, um, right in the middle of, of, the, of the chapter, says, The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. And they also carried off Abram, that's Abraham in the New Testament. Um, he'll later, his name will later be changed to Abraham. They also carried off Abraham's, Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So we've jumped right into the middle of this whole story. So real quick, there's a regional conflict going on. And five kings are at war with four kings and Lot who's living in Sodom and Gomorrah gets caught up in this conflict and he gets captured and he gets carried away. Um, the whole story is, is kind of nuts, um, but it's really cool of what's going on. In fact, the four kings and their armies actually defeat the five kings and their armies and all things go with the kings, the kings who win, cattle, sheep, um, anything and everything. In the ancient world, you didn't get paid to be a soldier. So whatever you could take with you essentially was, was, sort, of your, was sort of your payment. So Abraham's nephew Lot, uh, all of his family and all of his belongings get taken captured. Abraham hears about this. Abraham learns that his nephew has been captured. And Abraham gathers up 318 guys 
318 guys are going to take on four kings and all of their armies. And uh, sure enough, Abraham recaptures everything that had been taken, 318 guys, against four kings and kingdoms. Anyway, God's definitely on Abraham's side. And on his way home from this whole deal, he meets Melchizedek. And this is verse 18, 19, and 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine to Abraham. Melchizedek was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham, Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. It's the same story we just read in Hebrews chapter 7. Same, same story. Here's the interesting thing. We don't know much about Melchizedek at all. He just sort of enters into this scene. He just kind of comes out of the blue. Hebrews 7 says we don't know anything about his genealogy. We don't know who his parents are. Like a lot of times in the Bible, it's, you know, this guy's the son of this guy and this guy's the son of this guy, but not with Melchizedek. We don't know anything about this guy. He just, he just shows up. Um, no genealogy, no record, no names, no father or mother. We don't even know how old this guy is. He just sort of appears. And when he does appear, he brings bread and wine. It's really significant. He brings bread and wine. The elements that would someday reemerge at the Passover, right? And Melchizedek offers these gifts. And he blesses Abraham, invoking the name of God, El Eloin, a title that's used 28 times in the Old Testament. So this is just a little bit of Hebrew real quick. Blessed be Abram by El Eloin, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to El Eloin, God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And if that's not crazy enough, Abraham then tithes 10% of everything that he has Back to this guy, Melchizedek. Uh, he has, this is sort of this, these ideas that kind of now emerge in the church, tithings and offerings and this communion that we celebrate. Abraham tithes 10% of the spoils of the war till Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of everything. Well, uh, that's the how verse 20 says, uh, end of verse 20, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This whole thing blows my mind. This whole story is so crazy. Abram is this great patriarch. He's the fountainhead of monotheism. He's one of the most influential people in the history of Christendom. And he's tithing to an unknown priest comes out of the blue named Melchizedek. All right, now, if you have your Bibles... Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. We made it up through verse 3. So let's start in verse 4. Hebrews 7 verse 4. So just think how great he was, Melchizedek. Just think how great he was. That even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. But this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser 
is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abram. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. This is totally nuts. Anybody getting all of this? Are you getting all of this? Hey, real quick question. Anybody getting a little nervous that we're talking about tithing? Is that so anyone you probably got lost there? Okay, this is written like a couple thousand years. By the way, we are going to talk about tithing. So just allow your nervousness to ramp up. We're going to talk about that in just a second. This is all written a couple thousands of years before Hebrews happens. Meanwhile, there's this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 6. You can check it out later. Verses 9 through 15 that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah. And it was from the tribe of Judah that the kings would come. The tribe of Levi would be where the priests would come. But when Messiah comes, these two lines are going to merge into one person. This whole prophecy tells us all about it. The writer of the letter goes to great lengths to explain how Jesus serves as the high priest of the Christian faith, though he's from the tribe of Judah. All of this is really crazy details, but really, really important. But let's just keep going. Verse 11 says this, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, right? The Levi, family of Levi, they were all set aside to be the priests of Israel. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to people established that priesthood, then why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron, priest? For when the priesthood is changed... The law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears... One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of the indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Lots going on here. I want to just point out two things real quick. We'll start with the last little bit and then I want you just to notice the ending. The priest that'll come will be the priest forever. The priest that will come This priesthood is a priesthood that will stand forever. In the Old Testament, when a Levitical priest died, uh, their their priesthood expired. It was passed on to something else, but not the priesthood of Jesus. Not in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus will be our high priest forever. And then down in verse 20 uh, through 22, there's this oath. Uh, This whole thing is sealed with a Divine oath. Check this part out real quick. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God, or Melchizedek, sorry. He became a priest. No, sorry, sorry, Jesus. He became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of our better covenant. I want you to notice here that Abraham tithes to Melchizedek 
not the other way around. According to Jewish law, everyone tithed to support the Levitical priesthood because the Levites were not given their own territory, right? So they couldn't grow their own stuff. In Israel, the lesser always ties to the greater, but here, here, something is happening differently here. Though Abraham is tithing, he's tithing to this superior priesthood of Melchizedek. All right, this is a lot. Is everybody still with me? How about we just kind of shift a little bit and talk about tithing? Does that sound okay? I just want to make sure you guys are with me. And so I'll just pause here from some levity. My friend Jim over here sent me this picture. Let me show you this picture. (laughs) Thank you, Jim. Big sale this month. Tithe is only 8%. Okay, now are you guys with me? We're going to come back to tithing in just a moment. Stay with me. It's verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for them. Our great high priest, our great throned priest king, who saves us completely, asks what he will from a father who always hears and always grants his requests. So back to the question that we started with just a few moments ago, the question that Genesis answered, how do you sense Jesus praying for you today. As we're here right now, going through all of that crazy stuff, praying, praising, thinking about our bills and thinking about our finances and thinking about tithing and thinking about Troy's daughter getting baptized and all that's going on, our high priest who saves us completely, is interceding for you. He knows exactly where you are. He knows your hurts. He knows your hopes. He knows your past. He knows what the rest of this hour will hold. He knows what the rest of this day will hold. Nothing will surprise him. He knows. And he knows what's going to happen tomorrow and the day after And the day after that, and the day after that. Check out verse 26. It's amazing. Such a high priest truly meets our need. Our ultimate need is salvation. Our ultimate need is him. Such a high priest, Jesus, truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the nations. What do you need? What do you need? Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. 
my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What do you need? I need to tithe. And I need to take communion. Let me talk about that for just a second. I need to tithe. Not because the church needs it, although the church needs it. I need to tithe because it reminds me again and again that all that I have is his. And I'm simply a steward of all that he's given me. My money, my marriage, my kids, this church, none of it's mine. And when I tithe, when we tithe, we've tithed as long as I can remember. We tithed before we got married, we tithed. We still tithe today. When I give as an act of worship, I hear him say, you can trust me, you can trust me. You can trust me. Let me tell you a quick story that I've told probably three or four times since we started this church. I heard a sermon once about tithing and it just sort of changed my world a little bit. We go on vacation every summer to Hilton Head and there's this little United Methodist church on the road not too far from where we stay and I always sneak out early and go to church there. It's a real traditional church Lots of liturgy. Uh, the priest, the priest, the pastor is wearing robes. Um, at the end of the gathering, the uh, pastor invites anybody that wants to take communion to come forward to the altar, and you kneel at the altar and you take communion, and he kind of blesses you, and it's really, really cool. And uh, every year, I go there in my swim shorts and my t-shirt, and man, listen to the sermon every time. I go down front, have somebody pray for me. Are you kidding? Someone was offering to pray for me? Heck yeah. I'll go to the front, so take communion, go to the front. Well, that particular, this particular morning, a few years ago, many years ago now, the preacher was giving a message about tithing. It was about tithing, but it was so much more than tithing. He told a story about a very wealthy businessman who was asked to share his testimony in church a few years prior. And uh, this man in the church told his testimony It went something like this. He said, when I was a young college student, I came to Hilton Head Island for a study break. And like a good Methodist, I came to church on Sunday morning. He said, it was mission Sunday that morning. And one of the missionaries from Africa was raising money to build huts for people who had no home. And the missionary asked for a donation at the end of the service. And this guy was saying that, This missionary was so convincing that he decided while he was sitting there, he was going to give her everything that he had in his wallet. And he opens his billfold and he's got one dollar left. And he's sort of, you know, now renegotiating with himself, but decides I'm going to put in my last dollar. Uh, He pulls it out, crinkled one dollar bill, throws it in the offering plate. And the guy who's given his testimony says, since that day, I've never been the same. Since that day, my life's never been the same. He says, I've gone on to become a very successful and very wealthy businessman. 
He says, I'm, I own businesses that are shaping the future of our great country and impacting the world. I have both affluence and influence. I have a portfolio so large, I need someone to help me carry it. And he said, it's because I was willing to put my last dollar in the offering. I have all of this because I was willing to give everything I had to God. And he sits down and sort of, proud of himself. The congregation applauds at this man's great courage of giving his last dollar. And when this businessman sits down, maybe like back there where Kimberly is, an old lady who's sitting behind him now leans over his shoulder and says to him, I dare you to do it again. It was a message about tithing. But it was a message about so much more than tithing. And I remember sitting there kind of in the back that day and I said, God, don't ask me to do it again. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I went forward to the altar. So I need to take communion. And the preacher came over, not knowing who I was, and placed his hand on my head and said, God, ask this man to do it again. <laughs> I hate that preacher. <laughs> I dare you to do it again. My heart is racing, y'all. I don't know. I think we talked about this, Rudy, like 12 or 13 years ago, <laughs> something like that. I dare you to do it again. Would you lay it all on the altar? It's not about money, but it is about money. And it's not about your marriage, but it is about your marriage. And it's about your kids and it's about your work. And it's about this church. I dare you to do it again. I need to tithe and I need to take communion. I need to be reminded again and again of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid for my sins. I need to be reminded that there's nothing that I can do to make him love me more and there's nothing that I can do to make him love me less. I need to be reminded that he paid an indescribable price for my freedom and he desires for me to live abundantly and eternally. And that as I take my place at the table, that there are a lot of places that are open for people in this lost and dying world, people who are lonely and afflicted and suffering and mourning and the grieving and the celebrating. They're all welcome at this table. They're all welcome at this table. I need to be reminded of his words at this table. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. I need that. What do you need? Here's how the writer finishes chapter seven. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you because we need you. We come to you because you allow us, you invite us, you say, come, not in fear, but come courageously. And so we, together here, enter into your throne room with all that we are and all that we desire to become, with all of our hurts and disappointments and with all of our hopes and dreams, we step in. And more than anything else, we just need you. We just need you. So thank you. Thank you for giving us all that we need according to your riches and glory. Thank you. And now in these moments, as we reflect, as we listen, as we pray, as we remember through the taking of communion, as we tithe, as we sing and as we worship together, God, may you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.